Murdoch University, Alumni After Dark, powering your mind. Hello and welcome to a very special Alumni After Dark episode. In October, Murdoch alumnus and Human Rights Watch Asia Director Elaine Pearson returned to Murdoch University in Perth for a very special interview. Launching her new book, Chasing Rights and Wrongs, Elaine was interviewed by Associate Professor Anna Copeland, and uh, she covered some of the key moments of her global career championing human rights. Um, The interview was hosted to a live audience and was a wonderfully insightful evening full of some incredible stories. Let's take a listen. I just want to say thank you to Murdoch for giving me the opportunity to come back here where it all started. It's wonderful to see so many friends, family, um, and old familiar faces from when I was a student here, which now feels like a lifetime ago. You know, I was very lucky as sort of a recent law graduate, 23 years old, to go to the UN um, and get to participate um, in my first ever UN meeting. And, you know, I think I was quite naive. I didn't really know what I was in for. I imagined Geneva to be this place where, you know, diplomats in suits would be sitting by the lake, eating croissants, drinking cafe lattes, discussing the finer points of human rights treaties. Um, And instead, when I got there, it was the most diverse bunch of feminists that I had ever met in my life. And it was wonderful. I met, you know, sex workers from India, I met uh, former Khmer Rouge survivors, I met um, academics, human rights lawyers, domestic workers from Bolivia. Um, And, you know, I found that, you know, I had thought our job as NGOs would be really to convince governments why human rights was important. Um, But what I hadn't realized was that the very notion of what trafficking was, was contentious. And so actually it was sort of two coalitions of feminists Um, having this pretty fierce battle over language. Um, And so that was actually how I sort of learned, you know, human human rights, you know, what it means, I guess, to to advocate at the UN on on these issues. And I guess I learned, you know, about the power of language, things that, you know, somehow seemed quite innocuous, you know, were actually the subject of very fierce discussion and debate. Um, And I guess then to your question about how that's changed or, you know, over my career over the past two decades, you know, I, I still see actually those fights, um, very fierce battles over language. I think it's changed now. Like, you know, if I think on, you know, more recent battles that we've had in Geneva, um, yeah, particularly, I guess, looking at um, some of the language that the Chinese government has been trying to insert into the UN. There's a lot of language now about uh, win-win cooperation and, you know, mutually beneficial cooperation. and. You know, that all sounds fine in theory on the surface, um, but in reality, what those resolutions are doing are really trying to hollow out some of the architecture of institutions like the Human Rights Council Mm. to move away from being a place of accountability for serious human rights abuses and atrocities and more about uh, cooperation. And I think that is quite a dangerous road to go down um, and that is undermining you know, these very institutions which are there to protect um, and hold to account the perpetrators of the worst atrocities. Mm. It's such a contrast to the rest of your book, or so much of the rest of your book, which really talks to those um, very real and personal stories of you listening to the stories of people experiencing those abuses and then amplifying those stories. What role does that aspect of your work have 
uh, more broadly, but also in specific response to what you've just described in terms of the hollowing out of some of that accountability mechanisms that exist? Yeah, so I think, I mean, the other lesson that I learned early on from that first trip to Geneva is that, you know, one of the principles of human rights work is really about participation and self-representation of affected groups. And that our work as human rights organisations, human rights activists and, and lawyers is really to amplify those voices. Um, and so, you know, at that very first meeting in Geneva, it was a meeting of the UN Working Group on Contemporary Forms of Slavery. Um, one of the activists was a sex worker from Calcutta. And, you know, she stood up and she said, I'm speaking on behalf of 40,000 sex workers. And, you know, I'm not a criminal. I pay my rent and I want my rights respected. And I want to tell you, you know, how we should be preventing trafficking. We don't want children being forced into uh, prostitution in India. And I thought, you know, I was very lucky actually to sort of have that opportunity to see how these policies can affect certain groups. And that's a lesson I think that has carried with me, you know, throughout my work. Um, you know, I talk a bit about it also in the chapter on Manus Island and the extent to which the refugees themselves actually became the most powerful and persuasive advocates um, addressing these issues. And so, you know, I met a young man, Imran Muhammad, who was a Rohingya from Myanmar. Um, he taught himself English on Manus Island in the camps. He started writing op-eds for Sydney Morning Herald and The Guardian. Um, and he was one of the lucky ones. He managed to go to the United States. He was accepted as a refugee. And he he's been going to university in the US. He's studying social work. And he recently was accepted as a Pulitzer Fellow. Um, so he's been reporting on these issues himself. And so just to see, I think, you know, what people can do if they have a little bit of opportunity, and that often it is people you know, who are really sort of at the front lines, who have these experiences, who are in the best position to advocate. And our role is often to provide that space and, and help them you know, find the space to advocate, whether it's at the UN or in front of governments or politicians and mm -hmm. so on. And how powerful are those stories in changing the views of governments and politicians and those that do hold the power? I think those stories are critical. And I mean, you know, this is part of why I wanted to write this book, because I wanted to share the stories of people who have inspired me throughout my work. Um, and sometimes people say, you know, oh, gosh, working on human rights violations, doesn't it get you down? It must be so depressing and difficult. And yeah, it, it can be at times but also you meet incredible people who have you know, suffered a lot and they haven't given up, they're continuing to fight this fight. And so I think you know, at the very least, you know, all we can do is, is be there with them. And I think when you have the wins, when you celebrate, for instance, you know, the freedom of someone like Hakeem Al-Arabi, the Bahraini footballer who you know, was detained in Thailand for several months, you know, that in itself um, gives you, I think, really the sort of perseverance to keep going. So I really wanted to share um, in this book some of the backstories about what it takes, I guess, to push for the freedom of someone who's been arbitrarily detained, to share the successes, the wins we've had, but also, honestly, some of the challenges and some of the difficulties in, in doing this work. It's really um, some wonderful, there are wonderful moments in the book where you re realise the importance of that research work and the amplifying of voices, the importance of that work to those people whose stories you are telling. And I'm thinking, for example, of um, 
the man from Ethiopia, Somali man, who came with the report um, that you had written or that uh, Human Rights Watch had written years before, still carrying with him to Australia and shared his story with you and spoke about the importance of that report. Or um, the woman in the Philippines, Clarita, who also had her anguish over the loss of her sons, you know, yeah. recorded and acknowledged in the work that the Human Rights Watch was, was doing. So can you talk about um, that impact? First of all, what you think it meant to those people, but also how that affected you? Yeah, I mean, I think these were both really powerful stories and ones I wanted to share because a lot of people won't know these stories. So, you know, maybe to start with the Philippines, Clarita Alia is a woman who had lost five of her sons who were killed one by one um, by a death squad in Davao City. And at that time, who was the mayor of Davao City? It was Rodrigo Duterte, who later became the president. Um, and in 2009, I testified um, before a Human Rights Commission um, about these death squads in Davao City. And I met Clarita, and her story just really stuck with me because, you know, she tells the story about how she lost her first son. She was too afraid to go to the police because she'd had a warning from the police that if her son didn't, you know, change his ways of being involved in sort of petty crime, then he would wind up dead. And then what happened? He wound up dead. Um, and then the same thing happened again and again. And there was no accountability um, for, for these killings. So I wanted to share that story because I think it also speaks to you know, what happens when there is unchecked impunity. And you know, you know the story that you know, this mayor from Mindanao ended up becoming the president of the Philippines and really took that campaign of extrajudicial killing uh, nationwide. Um, there is somewhat of a happy ending to this story in that, you know, there is that spectre of accountability still looming. So uh, the International Criminal Court has opened a case um, against the Philippines for uh, these crimes against humanity. Uh, Duterte thought that he could outsmart them by withdrawing uh, the Philippines' um, acceptance of the Rome Statute. Um, but what he didn't realise is that that takes a year to kick in for that to take effect. And so in the meantime, uh, the investigation has been allowed to proceed. So, you know, this, this is positive, um, but for Clarita, obviously it won't bring her children back. Um, and she continues to live, you know, in a slum in Davao City. My colleague Carlos in the Philippines is still in contact with her. Um, and so it makes you realise how important it is to tell these stories and I guess just tell the truth about what has happened to these families. Uh, the other story that you mentioned just briefly um, is another chapter of the book and it tells the story about how I got an email um, actually to the Human Rights Watch account. Um, actually it was from the Ogadeni Association in Western Australia and it told this story about how uh, people who participated in a protest in Melbourne um, against a visiting Ethiopian government delegation had family members back home in Ethiopia rounded up and tortured. Um, and we get a lot of emails to the Human Rights Watch account and we can't always respond to everyone. But I recognised the area and I knew that we'd done a report on crimes against humanity in the Ogaden. So I wanted to meet this person and so he sent uh, one of his contacts in Sydney, Shukri Shafe, who came to the office and ended up staying for two hours telling me his story about how he'd worked as a judge in Ethiopia, he's now an Uber driver, um, and how he um, had been tortured um, by this person who was subsequently invited by the Australian government 
um, to, to speak in Australia. It was basically the, the state premier or the state president of this state where these violations had occurred. Um, and as a result, had had family members back home rounded up. And now Shukri, when he was explaining all of this, he had documents because he wanted to prove to me what had happened to him. He had the certificate um, from the military camp where he'd been detained by the Red Cross. And then he pulled out of his bag this very battered Human Rights Watch report. And I recognized it immediately. And he told me he'd carried that report um, all the way from the refugee camp in Kenya. And he showed me very proudly where he was quoted as an anonymous source in that report. And it really made me think that, you know, our reports, sometimes we feel like we don't have impact, you know, we don't change the situation on the ground um, in the country. But you also know those reports are so meaningful to the people whose stories are being told, because sometimes it's the first time um, that an international organization has actually acknowledged um, the abuses that, that they have suffered. Um, and in that case, there is also a happy ending, because subsequently, and it's quite a long story, uh, Abdi Alay, the abusive official who came to Australia and threatened the community here, um, subsequently um, has been arrested um, for other crimes that he's been involved in in Ethiopia and is currently in jail awaiting trial. Yes, that must have been quite some closure to hear that news um, for everyone. Yeah, and it, I mean, it doesn't always happen. It's obviously, you know, we always hope that, you know, the generals who are in charge of crimes against humanity in places like Myanmar will sometimes face, you know, justice. Um, but I think we really need to celebrate the cases where it does happen and continue to push, push for justice, you know, when it doesn't. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about your different roles in this role that you have with Human Rights Watch. Um, in terms of, I was really struck by a part in your book where you speak about your experiences um, when demonstrating and that feeling that you get when you're demonstrating or part of a demonstration, whether in Kathmandu or here in Perth, in fact, I think you talk about yeah. the Hanson demonstrations um, when you were here in Perth. And I think you say that it triggers a latent outpouring of emotion that's been buried, hidden down deep. And in that moment of raw unity with others, you fought back tears. And that really resonated with me, that whole um, idea of what it is to be an activist and that feeling that you get from that. I want to know to what extent that plays a part in your work, but also how you have those different roles of activist, of researcher, um, and of campaigner or kind of advocate in terms of taking that research and how they fit together and in what measure um, to make the, the role that you do. Yeah, I mean, I described that. I think that was the first ever protest that I joined. I was still a student here at Murdoch and Pauline Hanson, this was in the 90s, right, when she first came, became an MP and she was visiting Perth. And, you know, a bunch of us actually, students from the university, felt like, we wanted to go and have our voices heard because she made that infamous maiden speech where she talked about, you know, Australia being swamped by Asians. And as someone, you know, who is Asian, you know, I took it very personally. I felt like I really wanted to go and, and make my voice heard. And I did have that feeling, which I always have when I join a demonstration, like you may be surrounded by strangers, but you are all together in solidarity, standing up for what you believe in. And there is something that is just so incredibly powerful about that. And, you know, I see it, I feel like, you know, I see it today in the climate justice protesters, the young people that are taking to the streets, 
you know, now for, for climate justice. I see it in the Hong Kong protesters, in young people in Myanmar. I was just in Thailand. I met a very inspiring young uh, Thai student activist who's, you know, facing, you know, probably hundreds of years, potentially, detention and charges. And you think, you know, these are people who are really standing up for what they believe in. Um, and then I guess, you know, my job is obviously not to lead demonstrations at Human Rights Watch. You know, we are an organisation that documents human rights violations. So I guess that's where, you know, my more loyally side of, you know, having my law degree and investigating abuses, talking to victims, talking to witnesses, really building the case of patterns of human rights violations and recognising that that role of documentation is actually so important because you know, we are building, you know, it's almost like a brief for a court. You want to have something that is very robust that you can take to governments so that they can't deny um, that these abuses have occurred. Um, and so that is quite different, you know, and I think you know, the different thing about working for Human Rights Watch is you do have to sort of stand back and be objective and objectively take in you know, the stories that people are, are telling you. And it can be challenging at times. And so, you know, part of why I wanted to write the book is I wanted to have that freedom of not having to simply just write the facts. Um, at Human Rights Watch, we're taught to work, you know, to write in a certain way, in a very sort of loyally way, but to have the freedom of telling a bit of the backstory about how, um, yeah, about how some of these experiences really makes you feel as a human rights activist, both the highs and the lows. So, so what role does courage play then? Because you've talked about um, that feeling of courage. I mean, what have been the most frightening times, really, where you've had to really, you know, marshal your courage? Perhaps Mindanao was one example of that. But have there been other times where you've really been challenged in terms of having sufficient courage to do your job? Yeah, I think, I mean, definitely going head-to-head -head with Duterte. Um, <laughs> in the scary. In the place where the death squads were still active um, was challenging. Um, and yeah, also knowing that, you know, for local activists, you know, working for Human Rights Watch, working for an international organisation um, gives you a, a level of protection. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, generally not as so worried about my own personal security. I'm always worried very much about the staff who work for us, who are locals of that country. And I'm often very worried about the people that we interview um, and, you know, sometimes our local partners. So, you know, that, that can be really difficult. So, you know, certainly in the Philippines, after I testified and I left quite quickly, I had planned to return to Mindanao um, later for, to release our report, but was advised quite strongly um, by the local partners, which was sort of this ragtag group of Catholic priests and lawyers and journalists who told me in no uncertain terms that Duterte was very angry with Human Rights Watch and was quite volatile and it would not be a good idea for me to return to Mindanao. So I did not, I say to Manila. Um, Nepal, I guess, I was you know, based in Nepal, pre-Human Rights Watch, working on human trafficking. Um, and yeah, had a, a few sketchy situations. My mum's in the audience, so I don't know if mum necessarily knows all of these uh, <laughs> things. <laughs> but um, yeah, there was one time, so we, it was during the Civil War, and when we were going through Maoist areas, we would usually take public transport rather than, I was working for Oxfam at the time, rather than the Oxfam vehicle because it was lower profile. And at that stage, you know, often we would just try and stay low profile. We'd rather sleep on the floor in the local NGOs that we were visiting rather than stay in a hotel. And we'd just really try and blend in. 
And one day we were sort of waiting for the bus and we got on the bus to take us through this Maoist area. And I just noticed that the bus was like full of young men who were wearing sort of camouflage on the bottom, but then like t-shirts on the top. And, and then they all had weapons and there was like loads of ammunition on the bus. And I was just like, what is going on? And my, my translator and colleague, he just said, just be quiet, don't speak in English. Just So anyway, for 20 minutes or so, we were on the, the bus going through the mountains and then all of the men and all of the ammunition got off. And I was like, what was that? Was that, were they Maoists? Like, why are they taking the public bus? And he said, no, they're not Maoists. It's the Nepal army and they're taking the bus because they're using us as human shields, effectively, the, the civilians. So, you know, I mean, I feel like I'd learned about the laws of war, um, you know, in, in courses at university, but I had not had the experience myself of being used as a human shield until that very moment. Yeah. Let me bring you back a little bit to Murdoch, right? I want to take you back to when you first <laughs> left Murdoch. I'm interested to know what your reflections are on how your time here at Murdoch um, formed you, supported you, pushed you into the path you took? Oh, yes. I mean, I feel like, yeah, it's a lot of memories coming back. I haven't been back on campus probably, I don't know, maybe it's been a decade or, or so or, or even longer. I think the last time I was in this lecture theatre was when Gough Whitlam was speaking here. And I remember I got a photo with Gough, like just out the front there. So it's really nice actually to come full circle and come back. Um, to, to Murdoch Uni. I mean, this is actually where I started, you know, my interest in human rights. And, you know, I chose Murdoch because I knew from the beginning, studying law, that I didn't want to be a corporate lawyer working on St. George's Terrace. I was interested in how law can be used as an avenue of social justice. And so, you know, I felt like Murdoch offered a lot more interesting um, yeah, a lot more interesting units, particularly legal perspectives. So I did all sorts of units. I did feminist legal theory. I did human rights in Asia. I studied East Asian legal cultures. And that was actually what really sort of piqued my interest. And it was really thanks to one of the professors here, um, who's no longer here, Fernand de Varenne, who's now a UN Special Rapporteur, um, who really helped me because, you know, Murdoch was a partner in this program, uh, Australian Youth Ambassadors for Development, which was then run by AusAid. And I was told at that time, uh, if you have a partner and if you have a project, you'll have more chance of being selected. And I noticed Murdoch Uni was listed as a partner, so I thought, how can I do this? And Fernand, very kindly, um, he was taking me in my human rights class. He wrote to a number of uh, human rights organizations on my behalf, asking if they would be interested in taking a young idealistic law student. And uh, very thankfully, um, the Global Alliance Against Traffic in Women, um, a small NGO in Bangkok, Thailand, on which I'm now sitting on the board, um, said yes. And so, yeah, they got me, um, a young law student with a little bit of experience. And, you know, I, I really got so much in, in return. And as you know, Fanon sends a message um, to you today saying that he remembers that conversation too and he's extremely proud of the direction that you've taken and the work that you've done. Um, so what do you think going forward from here, I mean if you can indulge me for a moment because I know you're no longer the Australia director, but for Australia specifically, what are the human rights challenges do you think um, going forward? Well, I mean I think 
The climate is a huge one. I mean, yeah, we just have to look at the news and see the flooding in Victoria. You know, I live now in Sydney. We've had, over the last few years, we've had fires, we've had floods. You know, what's the human rights connection to that? Well, I mean, we're looking at the extent to which governments have a responsibility, actually, to mitigate um, the adverse impacts of climate change. And we just had recently, um, a couple of weeks ago at the UN, a really groundbreaking decision where a group of um, Torres Strait Islanders took the Australian government to court and, and to, to the Human Rights Committee, um, and they won. And so, you know, th this is groundbreaking for the world because it's basically saying there is actually a legal responsibility of governments to take adequate steps to mitigate the adverse impacts of climate change. So, you know, this is one area where we'll be doing more work. Um, you know, I think the other areas, you know, continue to be the, you know, long-standing um, discrimination and over-incarceration of First Nations Australians. I've done work here in WA, you know, visiting prisons, looking at inadequate uh, mental health support uh, for prisoners. I've visited uh, prisons from Broome, you know, to Acacia, to, to Bandiup. Um, and then also looking at, you know, still the treatment of, of refugees and asylum seekers. So, you know, several of the other events that we've had on, I've, I've had, you know, friends in the audience who I met, you know, in Manus Island um, years ago. They're now in Australia, but their lives still can't move on because they're on these temporary visas. So, you know, young, one young woman who was, you know, in, um, who's from Somalia, who I met two weeks ago in Brisbane, She's had two children in Australia. She's got married, and yet her visa status in Australia is still not secure. There's still people in limbo. Um, there's still a couple of hundred people in Papua New Guinea and Nauru who remain there who have still not gotten resettlement anywhere. So I think Australia still has a lot of work um, to do there in the treatment of, yeah, people who are fleeing and, and seeking protection. And finally, you know, on older rights, you know, we've also done quite a bit of work looking at um, the treatment of people with dementia in aged care facilities, and particularly the use of chemical restraint. So this is effectively using drugs as a way of modifying or controlling behavior. Now, obviously, we've had a royal commission looking at these issues. We've had a lot of attention in the media, um, and yet still these problems persist. So, you know, I think there is a range of human rights issues in Australia. We work very closely with Australian civil society, you know, our partner organisations on these issues. Um, but we will continue to, you know, press the Australian government um, to, to do better and to ensure that, you know, these, these rights are being recognised and being protected. Yeah. So we've had a change of government recently, federally. I'm interested in how much effect that actually has on your work. I mean, first of all, are you feeling more hopeful that there will be a greater commitment to human rights or to international obligations? And secondly, how does that actually, on a day-to-day -day basis, affect your ability to protect and promote human rights? Yeah, so I am feeling more hopeful um, having a change of government. Certainly we have more people in government to engage with and who are interested in discussing and understanding more of these issues. But I think what we're waiting for is actual concrete action to meet the words. So, you know, one example, I guess we've been doing a lot of work about the Australians trapped in northeast Syria. Um, you would have seen the reporting in recent weeks saying that Australia finally is going to evacuate, you know, these children, some of whom were born in these camps, um, but still we actually haven't seen that happen yet. Um, same with targeted sanctions. One of the things that we've been lobbying for is 
uh, targeted sanctions on individuals who commit human rights abuses because we don't think that they should be welcomed to come to Australia and if they own assets in Australia, those assets should be confiscated. And in December of last year, um, the previous government passed a law on that, finally bringing Australia in line with the UK, the US, the EU, Canada, um, and yet we've seen hardly any targeted sanctions applied, just, you know, I think a very small number with regard to Russia and Ukraine. So, you know, places like Myanmar, you know, we've seen um, following the coup, you know, many sanctions by other governments applied against those generals who were responsible for human rights abuses, um, and yet we still haven't seen any action yet from, from this government. So I think we still need to, um, even though we've got more people, I guess, to talk to and engage with on these issues, uh, we want to see that translate into meaningful action. Um, and on climate, yes, I think, you know, in some sense, you know, we've seen that bill um, pass about reducing emissions, that's positive. Um, but at the same time, we're also seeing sort of new sites for oil and gas mm. exploration. So, you know, it's sort of a bit of a bit of both at the moment. And I think, you know, one of the things that we're pushing for is a commitment to no new fossil fuel um, projects. And that's not just, you know, a position of Human Rights Watch, that's a position of the UN, that's a position of the International uh, Energy Agency as well. And, you know, we need to see governments really step up um, mm. at this point in time. So taking you from Australia then to the region, because you are now the Director of Asia for um, Human Rights Watch, um, what should the Australian government do in the region around some issues that you know, they're facing in that region most immediately? And could you comment on why perhaps it is the case that the Australian government is less active in that particular region in some cases than they might be on other things, other global issues? So I think the reason, I think Australia doesn't like to be seen, our government doesn't like to be seen to be lecturing other governments and, you know, is quite cognizant of the fact that we are part of this region, you know, we're not far away. Um, and so, you know, this is often the response, we're not going to lecture other countries. And I'm like, well, good, I don't want you to lecture other countries either. I don't think that's an effective way of advocating. But what I would like you to do is not just stand with the elite authoritarian rulers of those countries in order to pass dodgy trade deals, in order to sell Australian products. I would like you to also meet with and engage with the people of those countries, civil society leaders who are at risk, who are under threat um, in those countries. Um, and so I think that is really important. I'd really like to see the Australian government host, you know, potentially a meeting of civil society leaders in Australia from countries in our region. And, you know, I think that would send a strong message, you know, to uh, authoritarian leaders of Myanmar, Thailand, you know, Cambodia, you name it. Um, China, that you know, Australia does stand with um, civil society leaders. And, and so I think that's one thing. I would like to see targeted sanctions applied um, in a consistent, principled manner. So you know, not just you know, calling out countries because it's politically expedient you know, now to, to do so with respect to the Chinese government. I think, yeah, the Chinese government should be sanctioned for its actions in Xinjiang. But so should Myanmar for its actions, you know, so should the Philippine government, you know, there are a range of governments and I think Australia has a lot of catch up to do and those sanctions will only be effective um, if multiple governments come on board and at the moment I feel like Australia is undermining the efforts of others. I would also like to see Australia play more of a leadership role at the Human Rights Council 
in pushing for country-specific resolutions, particularly on um, serious abuses that are taking place in our region. So places like you know, Myanmar, the Philippines. We just lost a resolution at the Philippines in the last Human Rights Council session. And that was because no one really wanted to stand up. People feel like, oh, well, Duterte is not in power anymore. You know, now it's a Marcos. But the killings continue. They might not be at the same rate, but there's still not accountability. So, you know, we still need to put that spectre of accountability into the calculus of decisions. And so, you know, institutions like the UN, they might be flawed, but at this stage, you know, they're, they're what we've got. And I think it's really important that democracies um, like Australia and New Zealand, like South Korea and Japan, yeah, really are standing up for values um, and, and pushing for, for human rights in different forums and not doing it in a way that's, you know, simply lecturing other countries. And what role do Australian um, legislation, does Australian legislation have? I'm talking now about the uh, Federal Campaign for a Human Rights Act. Um, and a we also have that campaign running here in WA where there's a push to get a Human Rights Act here in this jurisdiction as well. Um, do you see the importance, do you see that as important part of this development and this um, promotion and, and protection of human rights? I think so. I mean, Australia is, you know, one of the only sort of Western democracies that doesn't have a Bill of Rights. So, you know, we, we need one. I mean, I know the UK government is talking about getting rid of their Human Rights Act, but, you know, the UK is in all sorts of, of problems at the moment. Um, you know, we do have some states in Australia and territories that do have um, human rights acts or legislation. I think it is a really powerful way um, of ensuring that we enshrine those rights um, in law. But even without it, like, you know, that's no excuse. Australia's ratified all the major human rights treaties. There is an obligation to protect human rights. Um, and that should apply to everyone who's, you know, here in Australia, you know, citizens or non-citizens. Um, and, you know, I think uh, having a Bill of Rights, you know, at, at the state level, at the federal level, will certainly assist in, in that process. So when you first joined Human Rights Watch, it was quite a small organisation. It's more than doubled, is, am I right yeah, in saying that? Yeah. In terms of staff. Um, I imagine that you are working very closely with, with the staff. You're in constant contact across the globe. You're sharing an experience that's very similar even though it's coming from very different parts of the world. Just talk to us a little bit about what it's like to be part of that team, how that changed from when you first joined to now, and, and what it's like for you, what are, the, what are the positives of being part of that team? Yeah, well, I mean, I write about this when I first joined Human Rights Watch um, in New York back in 2007. You know, I feel like, and well, now I know there's a word for it, imposter syndrome, but I definitely felt like I was you know, surrounded by people who were smarter than me, who spoke far more articulately than me, um, and who seemed to know everything about human rights issues. And yeah, I felt quite like out of my depth, probably for the first, you know, six months, 12 months. But I really hustled and I, you know, made sure that I learned the issues um, that I was working on. Um, and the work that we do has changed. So, you know, the backbone of the work of Human Rights Watch is really the research. So we have an incredible team of researchers who go out, who fact find, who talk to victims, who talk to witnesses, who gather evidence of abuses, and then they put that information together in reports. 
Um, the way in which it's changed these days is, you know, some countries we don't have access anymore. And unfortunately, that list of countries is growing. So we also have to be more creative now in terms of how we do our investigations. So we're using digital techniques more and more, um, things like open source investigations, digital verification. We get a lot of photos and videos sent to us. Sometimes we're verifying whether stuff has been doctored, is it accurate? And we cross-check that information with uh, interviews that we do with victims and witnesses. So for instance, Myanmar, uh, when the Rohingya were fleeing from Rakhine State, if you remember, um, when their villages were being razed to the ground, uh, we use things like satellite imagery to document um, the extent to which villages that one day were standing, the next day were completely you know, destroyed by fire. And the satellite doesn't tell you who burnt down the village. But um, if you cross-check that information with uh, the testimony of victims who are fleeing from those villages, and if you also track the movements of the Myanmar military, which you know, is available in publicly accessible information in the Gazette, then it tells you exactly how, where the troops were moving, um, and you could correlate that with the arson attacks. And so we put that information together, we publish that information in our reports, and that information gets used um, by UN fact-finding teams who are also gathering information, not just for the sake of publishing reports, but also with a view to accountability someday. Um, they're gathering evidence with the hope that you know, there will be some form of international justice for yeah, the generals who perpetrated these atrocities. And so being part of that team, how does that feel to you in terms of what benefits in your professional life has being part of that team brought you? Um, I mean, I feel like I feel very lucky. I've been with Human Rights Watch such a long time because I'm surrounded by, yeah, courageous, tenacious, inspiring, you know, really wonderful people who come from, you know, a lot of them come from quite different backgrounds. And so, you know, my team now, I'm the Asia director. I have 35 staff based across the region covering 20 different countries, so of many different nationalities. Um, and, you know, everyone works very hard, but we also share a sense of humour and, you know, we're all combined in our sort of desire to, you know, try and alleviate some of these worst abuses uh, for people. And so, you know, the way in which we stay in contact, you know, is email, is Signal, is WhatsApp, is Facebook. Um, and we do try and get together from time to time. So obviously with COVID, that has been really hard and I think it's been challenging for my staff who, you know, in some countries, we just have one person per country. Um, but, you know, we do try and have sort of regional team meetings, you know, once a year or so to at least get together and have an opportunity to exchange ideas and share the strategies of like what's working and what's, you know, what's sometimes not working. Earlier today, when you were speaking to some of our students, we were asked about um, how somebody goes from being Murdoch's student to this kind of path or to working in human rights. And I think what you said was, uh, my advice is that you join an NGO and you get some real experience, preferably a scrappy NGO. <laughs> and I, I loved that phrase. Um, and I think it speaks to that whole getting out there on the ground, at the coalface, if you like, working with actual violations, working with people, hearing stories, understanding the impact because in Geneva, as you've said, it can be quite separate, yeah. it can be quite distinct from, from the reality, but getting that experience on the ground, do you see that as a fundamental kind of building block of what you've done? Yes, I mean, I think getting field experience is essential, you know, if you want to do 
this work. And so I feel very fortunate that I had that year in Thailand and I you know, was able to you know, meet with you know, former victims of trafficking, sex workers, you know, spend time with people and understand more about the context of how these abuses take place. So, you know, my job is not just sitting behind a desk or a computer. It's really important to sort of get out there in the field, meet with people, talk with people, um, to understand the real life challenges and decisions that, that people face. Um, and so my advice, yeah, to law students is if you can, yeah, try and get some of that field experience. You know, work for the small scrappy NGOs because they will give you more experience because they always need, you know, more staff. Um, whereas if you go and work for the UN or a big bureaucratic organization, then, you know, it is more bureaucratic and there's maybe less opportunities. And so I think I was always lucky that, um, and somewhat, I guess, plucky in that I would put myself forward um, for things um, and, you know, try and sort of make the most of, you know, how to get yourself noticed. I mean, the other advice I had for students was, you know, write try and write things, you know, get your name out there, write a blog, try and publish articles if you can, you know, write reports, you know, that sort of stuff is, is really helpful because if you can communicate well, if you can communicate effectively, um, you know, that's a big part of actually being a, a human rights researcher mm. is about communication. And we talked a bit before about the, um, the similarity, if you like, between journalistic work and the sort of work in researching. Um, a lot of your staff, you were saying, are ex-journalists. Yeah. Um, and obviously those skills of, of research and journalistic um, fact-checking and telling of story are, are really important parts of it. Um, do you think that there's another book in your future? And if there is, <laughs> what would it be about? Oh, not in the short term, <laughs> I have to say. I'm quite relieved. Um, I feel like, yeah, the book was sort of this thing hanging over me every weekend, every evening. I was like, oh, if I'm not working on the book, I'm like feeling guilty. So I'm just quite relieved to have it done. Um, but, and now I've just recently started this new job as Asia director. So, you know, I have quite a big job, but yeah, certainly in the future, I would be interested, you know, in, in writing some more. You know, I, I think we were talking earlier, you know, I'm, a, I'm actually quite interested in writing fiction. Um, and I had started a fictional novel about human rights abuses because I thought it would be an interesting way to draw people in. Um, but I just found on top of my regular day job, it was just impossible to sort of get in that mindset. So I think that will have to wait until my post Human Rights Watch career. Well, we'll wait for it with bated breath. <laughs> Thank you so much for writing the book and thank you so much for being here tonight and sharing with us your stories. If we could thank Elaine. <laughs>